Join us this weekend as we celebrate all God is up to through Wooddale Church and through our partnerships here, near, and far. Wooddale Worldwide, along with our local and global partners, extend friendship to people across the globe and share the message of hope offered through Jesus Christ. Through these partnerships, we've helped plant thousands of churches, train up Christian leaders around the world, invest in local communities, and bring the hope of the gospel across the street and to some of the farthest corners of the planet. Your commitment, prayer, and generosity are making an eternal difference. To learn more about Wooddale Worldwide and how you can be a part of the work God is doing, visit wooddale.org worldwide. Shalom, I'm Mitch Glazer, president of Chosen People Ministries, as you've heard. And that was a wonderful video that really touched my heart, and I hope it touched yours. And this is a church I know that stands for missions, that stands for making disciples of all the nations. And that's going to be our, our topic today. I'm also a Messianic Jew, a Jew who believes in Jesus. And Chosen People Ministries has been around for 127 years. And so we've been preaching the gospel to Jewish people and helping them become disciples of Jesus the Messiah for many, many years. And so I want to thank Pastor Dale and Pastor Richard for the great opportunity to speak to you during Missions Week, which for a missionary is just a wonderful, wonderful thing to be able to do. And we're going to talk about Jewish evangelism as the starting point for the Great Commission, not the ending point, but the starting point. And I believe that one of the most important uh, facts, understandings that I'd like to share with you today is that in light of the Great Commission, we want to make sure that Jewish evangelism does not become the great omission of the Great Commission. And so we're going to begin our journey uh, with quoting, not the Bible, but he is a Jewish prophet. And, you know, there are lots of Jewish prophets uh, in the Bible. But this prophet is a little bit uh, different. And his name is Robert Zimmerman. And I believe he was from Hibbing, Minnesota. And he was one of my heroes for many, many years. And uh, people, we heard rumors and I was living in San Francisco at the time that Bob Dylan had become a Christian. Well, I mean, for people in my generation, that was like the most amazing thing in the world. And his manager, whoever it was, called our office at the ministry and asked us to hand out tracks at the Fillmore West, which is, uh, I'm sorry, the Warfield Theater, not the Fillmore West. I saw that, uh, saw others there but at the Warfield Theater in November of 1979. And they said, would you do a gospel track to hand out to people coming to hear Dylan because he's become a believer? And this was his manager. And so I said, well, if you really are sincere, then you'll leave us with six free tickets at the will call. <laughs> and uh, they did. So we went, we picked up the tickets, went back after the concert, which blew my mind. And because it was so clearly 
uh, uh, pro-Jesus, and, and the music was great. And so we went, we wrote a track called The Times They Are A-Changing, and then for the next 10 nights, we were handing out gospel tracks, sharing the, sharing the word of the Lord with Jewish people, hippies, non-hippies, you name it, whose minds were absolutely blown because their hero, Bob Dylan, had become a prophet for Jesus. Where he is today well, I'm not an expert on that, but I know where he was back then. And this, there's a wonderful song when he returns, and Dylan says this, and he really is not, he is a poet laureate. He is uh, somebody who won the Nobel Prize for poetry. So Dylan sang, like a thief in the night, he'll replace wrong with right when he returns. Will we ever learn? that there'll be no peace, that wars won't cease until he returns. Then I love this part. Of every earthly plan that is known to man, he is unconcerned. He's got plans of his own to set up his throne when he returns. What certainty Dylan had, at least at that moment, about the second coming of Jesus. He understood that God had a plan. God had planned a future for all of humanity, and that that future was unstoppable, absolutely unstoppable. And yet, as we think about the future, this year's been tough enough, and hopefully we're now thinking about this year in terms of the past. <laughs> but the future can be also very uncomfortable to think about, for believers, we know we have a glorious future, yet we all have loved ones who may not know the Lord, and we know that the future also has a downside to it. And so there's an urgency to preaching the gospel message, and the Savior calls upon his disciples in our text this morning to live today in light of tomorrow. It is his soon return that actually motivates us to preach the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. The urgency of the Great Commission, and it requires urgency, but the urgency is rooted and grounded in the future. Only God knows when the end will come, but we know that in the future, his kingdom will be set up on planet Earth, and we want all of our loved ones, all of our friends, all of our family, everybody we know to at least hear the gospel so that they have an opportunity to enjoy that glorious future that God's planned. Now, when I became a believer, I was very ignorant of all of this because I'd never even seen a New Testament. I was raised in a traditional kind of modern, orthodox, somewhat secular Jewish home. And if you don't understand that, believe me, there are a lot of Jewish people who don't quite get it either. And so I knew what I was supposed to believe, but it never connected. I never quite believed it. Then I went out to California, uh, to San Francisco. That's where all the answers to life were. I would have stopped in Minneapolis, but I just kept going. And lo and behold, two of my best friends in the fall of 1970 came to know Jesus and were radically transformed. I knew that they were changed. I knew that they had peace and joy and all of these things that we talk about that we're somewhat used to now as believers. But 
when it happens to us initially and when we see it in the lives of others, it is mind-boggling. And I couldn't figure out what happened to my dear friends, both Jewish. And they began sharing the gospel with me, and I argued with them. And I had a job down in the Redwood Forest at a campground, and I offered my first English, because I usually prayed in Hebrew, my first English prayer, spontaneous prayer, because we usually, Jewish people, read written prayers a lot. And I said, God, if you're really there, show me the truth and show me how I'm supposed to get to you. Next thing that happens is that night I went and took one of my kids, because I was a counselor at a camp, uh, a, a outdoor education program. I took him to the phone booth at night. If you don't know what a phone booth is, look it up in Wikipedia. Anyway, so I went to the phone booth, and on the ledge where there should have been a phone, a phone book, was a copy of Good News from Modern Man. I had no idea what this book was. I opened it up, and it said, it had weird chapter names, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I'd never heard of these people. But I saw the little stick figures in the Good News from Modern Man, and some of them had long hair, so I knew it was Jesus, because I knew it wasn't me, even though my hair was long. And so I read this in about two or three days, and immediately I came to know the Lord. I, I knew that Jesus was the promised Messiah. I didn't even really believe in God before, but I went zip all the way there. Not only did I believe that Jesus was the Messiah, I actually believed he was God in the flesh. And then I began meeting some Christians, and they told me, keep reading, and you'll see that Jesus is coming back any moment. So I grew in my faith on what I call a second coming hair trigger. I knew for sure he was coming back at any moment. And we had discussions among, I was only 19, so we had discussions about whether or not we would have time to get married or whether we'd have time to go to college or time to get a good job. But we all knew that none of this was going to happen because Jesus was coming back any second, any moment, and that's the way we lived our lives. So eventually, I went back uh, to the East Coast to try and break the good news to my parents. It was not received well, quite frankly. But I told them also I was going to become a missionary and go to Bible college. That they especially did not like, and they didn't even pay for college. So good Jewish parents, but that was not the direction they were hoping for, for me. And so I got a job with my friend who had become a Gentile kid from New Jersey who had become a believer in Jesus, and he was really good at stuff and construction. And so I became a roofer at the age of 19 and a half. But I was a lousy roofer. So this is what happened the day before I put my foot through the roof of, of, of a house and got fired by my best friend. I looked, it was dusk, almost, almost dark. And I was looking out above the roof. Now, I was a little afraid of heights, so roofing probably wouldn't have been my career. So I was looking out, and all of a sudden, I saw him. I mean, I was so expecting Jesus to come back that I knew it was him. I saw a figure, and it was, he was lit up with, with white lights and blue lights, and I just knew it was him. And I was speechless, and I said to my friend, come look quick, look quick, look quick. And he came over and he said, that's not Jesus. I said, no, I, I, I think it's Jesus. And at that moment, I didn't know what to do. See, you're all mature Christians. I was a new Jewish believer. I thought that maybe at churches, they taught you how to be raptured or what to do at the second coming. I mean, do you wave your hand? Jesus, I'm on the roof. It's dark, but here I am. Do you, do you take a little jump? 
and I had not started Bible college yet, so I had no idea what to do. But my friend said, look, look, but he made me look over, over the roof, which I wasn't, I didn't want to do. But he said, look, and of course, I, Jesus was attached to a Catholic church, you know, it was a statue. And I was heartbroken. I was so disappointed because I wanted Jesus to come back so badly. And dear friends, one of the reasons we sometimes lag in our making disciples in, and our disciples, and not only in our discipleship, but in our proclamation, one of the reasons we kind of don't do it as well as we should do it at times, although we, I know we all try, is because we're not in touch with the urgency, because the urgency is based upon the second coming. Because Jesus is coming back soon, we need to get out there and fulfill the Great Commission. And so uh, the Great Commission is uh, what we're going to be talking about. And so let me, uh, let me read it. You have it right in front of you, but let me read it. And it's uh, really pretty simple. The Great Commission is in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus, we call him Yeshua, that's his Hebrew name, said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And that was really something, because the disciples may have thought he already had all that authority, but something changed in his level of authority. And what changed? The resurrection from the dead. That's what changed. Paul writes in Romans 1.4, he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. In other words, he died as the rejected king of Israel, but rose the victorious Son of God. He died the suffering servant of Israel and rose the all-powerful Lord of all the nations. And so this is the introduction to the Great Commission. It is based in this transition that Jesus brought about because of his death and his resurrection. And then the disciples are commanded to go. So Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. But I want to tell you that even though the verb in Greek is an imperative, it is not translated exactly correctly. And you Greek students out there can take a look at it. I don't want to get overly technical, but I think you'll see that this is true. It should be better translated, and it's very important, maybe after having gone, or once you've left, or while you're on the way. Because the Greek tense is a completed action, therefore it presumes that this, the disciples were going, that they were gone. Jesus presumes the disciples are on their way. 
So Jesus was not issuing an appeal to go, which sometimes is done at missions conferences, where I'm going to ask you, some of you, if you've really considered going, young people, retired people, and, you know, a lot of us should consider it. Have we really considered going someplace in the world as missionaries? Well, Jesus did not give the disciples a choice to leave home. He presumed that they were gone. Not that they were necessarily leaving home, but that the focus of their entire life had changed. Now that he was gone, that he was ascending to the Father, their entire purpose for living was bringing the good news to Jews and Gentiles across the globe to make disciples of all the nations. So Jesus does not focus on an appeal to go, but actually tells the, the disciples what to do while they're on the way. And we'll look at that in a moment. But one other thing that's really important in this text, and that's the inclusion of the Gentiles. Now, we live in, in, in an age where, obviously, you have probably a few more Gentile believers uh, than Jewish believers here. So if you're not Jewish, would you raise your hand? <laughs> see what I mean? We, we seem to have a majority of Gentiles. I would say we've done really well with the Gentiles. Now, if I ask how many of you are Jewish, we're going to have two or three, a little remnant of Jewish people raise, raise their hands. And so the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's gospel plan to make disciples of the world has worked out pretty well. So congratulations. Wooddale's been very successful. But according to the text, Jesus is now transitioning. He not only has all authority in heaven and on earth, but he is also asking the disciples to do something what he previously told them not to do. So it's an expansion. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, I'll bless those who bless thee, curse those who curse thee, and through you, Father Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. John 3.16, you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So the disciples should not have been surprised by this drastic change in the commission that Jesus is giving to these Jewish disciples. But look back in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. These 12, Jesus sent out instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then in Matthew 22, verse 24 through 26, he answered them and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so we understand that this is now a dramatic change. Jesus had come to his own people, the Jewish people, and now, after his resurrection, his 40 days of Bible school and his post-resurrection Bible Institute, which I would have loved to have attended, Jesus, before he ascends, changes the whole ballgame and says, disciples, Jewish disciples, there's a change. I am the Lord of the universe, and your mandate is now to go into all the world and make disciples. And this shift is further mentioned in the book of Acts. Chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remote, remotest part of the earth. So Jesus outlines, again, what the disciples are supposed to do. He's not asking them for a decision to go. I'm not asking you for a decision to go. I'm asking you to recognize that you've already been sent. And where you go is not the issue. It's what you do. And so in this instance, Jesus is telling his disciples that they were to be martyreo, they were to be witnesses, willing to lay down their lives so that the gospel goes out. We have it all wrong by thinking that missions is a special calling. It's not. The only question we should have for God is, what shall I do and where? What shall I do and where? The Great Commission doesn't always mean leaving your home to be obedient to the Savior. You can serve the Lord even cross-culturally, right where you are. You know this better than me. By 2018, approximately 43,000 people born in Somalia were living in Minnesota. 94,000 Minnesotans spoke Somali, Amharic, that's Ethiopian language, or a related language at home. Listen to this. In 2016, there were more than 2,000 South Sudanese living in Minnesota. St. Paul has the largest Hmong community in the U.S. St. Paul also has a population of 10,000 Karen people, a minority ethnic group in Burma, which is the largest contingent of that people group in the United States. But there's also another people group living right here in Minneapolis. And you don't have to leave your home to go cross-culturally to reach them. And that's the Jewish people. The Twin Cities Jewish community has grown by 23% since 2004. And it's now numbering almost 65,000, probably a little bit more. The growth has been fueled by Jewish people moving here from other states, growing numbers of interfaith marriages and so on. There are now 35,000 households in the Twin Cities with at least one Jewish adult, 44% increase since 2000. These households are likely to include people from other faiths, maybe some evangelical Christians. And what a joy it would be to meet the evangelical Christians who are married to Jewish people and then find a way to help them reach their husband or wife. Now, Jesus gave the disciples, whether they were staying home or going, whether they were crossing uh, language, cultural, or geographic boundaries, or staying right home, or doing cross-cultural ministry at home, whatever they were doing, they were to do uh, three things. Number one, to make disciples. Methetes, a disciple is a learner. In the old days, in the first century, everybody would move into the rabbi's house if they had one. And so that's why Jesus was constantly followed by his disciples, because that's the way rabbis made disciples. They basically lived with those they were discipling. They were to also baptize them, to immerse them. The well-known pastor, British pastor, John Stott, wrote, uh, People may become disciples of Jesus secretly, but they must be baptized publicly. So in advancing from discipleship to baptism, 
Jesus moves people from the public to the private, from the personal to the corporate, from conversion to community and local church involvement. The disciples formed a community, and you see that in Acts chapter 2. They met regularly. You can't really be a disciple without being part of a discipleship community. And that's really, really critical. That's hard for some Jewish people, by the way, because church is not familiar territory. So uh, when, you, when you bring a Jewish person uh, to church, just remember they're going to be a little bit uncomfortable. Or when you lead a Jewish person to the Lord, which I pray you will, that's going to be a little difficult for them to make some of those adjustments. And then third, they were to teach the rest of the truth to disciples. Inspiring obedience, Jesus said, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. We need to teach our disciples, and we need to set an example of obedience in word and in deed. But I wanted to ask us to consider one more question as we look at this phenomenal passage that's so instructive for our lives and our ministries. And that one question is this. With the inclusion of the Gentiles, do we now believe that the Jewish people are no longer needed in the plan of God? Does the inclusion of the Gentiles require the exclusion of the Jewish people? Absolutely not, because the Jewish people have a critical role to play in the age to come. Jewish people were not cast off for their unbelief. The God's plan for the Jewish people didn't end at the cross. God still has a future. The Jewish people still play a role, and you play a role in the future through the Jewish people. Let me explain it. In Romans 11, 25, and 26, Paul writes, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. In other words, there's a day coming when all Israel who are left at that time, near the end, will be saved. The remnant will become the nation, and we look forward to that great, great day. But the real question is, how is that going to happen? Paul earlier stated something that I would like to mention. In verses 12 and 15 of Romans 11, he writes, If their transgression is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentile, how much more will their fulfillment be? In other words, Gentiles, if you think you've been blessed through the failure of the Jewish people to embrace Jesus, wait to see what happens when the Jewish people get saved. You're going to see something else. And then, how do we get there? Well, that's Romans 11, 11. And this is really important for Gentile uh, believers. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they, Paul writes. May it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. He calls upon the Gentiles to make Jewish people jealous. You know, the part of my testimony that I wish I had time to really share, you can go on, I found Shalom, you'll see a hundred Messianic Jewish testimonies, you'll love it. But the way it happened for me was because two young Gentile Christians, actually ex-bikers, not that you can't be a Christian biker, but they were ex-bikers. They 
were driving in a car from Northern California to Oregon and picked up my friend who was hitchhiking. They got her in the car, they began driving off, and immediately the woman turns around to my friend and says, so honey, are you saved? <laughs> and of course, my friend Joni says, from what? Jewish people don't know the lingo. And so, you know, do you believe in Jesus? She says, no, of course not, I'm Jewish. And then Helene, the woman, said, oh, we love the Jewish people. We think the Jewish people are wonderful. You're God's chosen people. At which point, Joni was thinking about jumping, but they were going too fast. And they began sharing the gospel with her. And after she ended up in Oregon with these folks, she came to know the Lord and moved into this Christian commune. Thank God it was a fairly normal one at the time. And she was discipled. She was baptized. And she came down to Northern California to share the good news with me and my other friend. And I knew that her life was so transformed. And then my other friend became a believer in Jesus. And his life was transformed. And I was jealous. Absolutely jealous. I wanted what they had. I couldn't say, well, it's not Jewish because I knew they were Jewish. But their lives were changed so beautifully, and they were so filled with peace and with love and all the good, good things that the gospel message promises. And so I became jealous, and ultimately, God led me to his word. I read the word. I found the Lord. He found me, and that was almost 50 years ago. In November, uh, in the middle of November, I'll celebrate 50 years as a believer. Now, there's... One more passage in closing I'd like to bring to your attention. Along, the, along with the Great Commission, to make disciples of all the nations and to also uh, disciple people, uh, uh, both Jews and Gentiles, and to also uh, baptize and teach and, and all the other wonderful things that we have in our Matthew 28 text, there is also somewhat of uh, a reiteration of the importance of Jewish people in world evangelism. So listen to me for a moment, and let me explain it, because it needs explanation. So Paul, a Messianic Jew, Jewish believer in Jesus, who was called to reach the Gentiles, an apostle to the Gentiles, wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we need to take this literally and seriously, just like we understand the Great Commission. The verse, first of all, is all written in the present tense. So Paul's saying, I am presently not ashamed. The gospel is presently the power of God. It's presently the salvation to all who believe. It's presently to the Jew first. And it's presently also to the Gentile. So in other words, Paul's not writing from the vantage point of almost 30 years later, which is probably close to when he wrote the book of Romans, but Paul is saying that this to the Jew first idea doesn't change even after the Jewish people heard. So the gospel is always to the Jew first. It's always to the Jew first. What does he mean? There are two ways to take the Greek word proton first. Number one, it could be sequential. First to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, finish with all the Jewish people, go to all the delis in St. Louis Park, and finish with all the Jewish people, and then move on uh, to all the Gentiles. That's not what he means, because the second understanding of the Greek word 
Proton is a priority. And I believe that that's what Paul's talking about. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He did go to synagogues first in the book of Acts, but when he went out to the pagan world, he couldn't exactly do that easily. And so we are to understand that Jewish evangelism, even in the midst of making disciples of the whole world, that Jewish evangelism is still somewhat special because God still has a plan for the Jewish people because when the Jewish people come to Jesus, then Jesus returns. That's what Paul was saying in Romans 11. So the same person who wrote Romans 11 wrote Romans 1.16. So Jewish people are to hear the gospel first, not sequentially, but Jewish people are always to have an important priority in your heart. In Matthew 6.33, you know the verse Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's not that we can't seek a husband or a wife or a house or lost keys or a lost car. You know, it's, it's not that we can't seek other things, but we're always to make the kingdom of God something of a heart priority. And all I'm appealing to you is as you go out as disciples to make other disciples, remember that Jewish people are special in the plan of God. He, may, he did it, not me. Some Jewish people would say, I wish he would have chosen someone else. But God chose the Jewish people, and he wants us to reach them. Jewish people were chosen to be God's bridge of redemption in a dark and broken world. Through the Jewish people, we have the scriptures. We have the earthly family of the Messiah. The virgin herself was a Jewish mother. <laughs> And we are to have this heart priority for the salvation of Jewish people, even until the end of the age. Now, what can you do? Number one, make some Jewish friends. Number two, pray for your Jewish friends. Number three, love your Jewish friends. Love always works, by the way. Get close enough to Jewish people so that they can see your life and your testimony. And then share the gospel sensitively with your Jewish friends and family, and maybe even partner with Jewish believers and ministries to the Jewish people, like Chosen People Ministries. There was a famous missionary to the Chinese, Hudson Taylor. You know about him. He was friends with a famous missionary to the Jewish people, John Wilkinson. And every year on the 1st of January, Taylor would send a five-pound note to John Wilkinson for his ministry among the Jewish people. The next day, Wilkinson would send a five-pound note to Taylor. In Taylor's, with Taylor's five-pound note, he had a little line that said, to the Jew first. Wilkinson sent back the five pounds and said, and also to the Gentiles. It's a beautiful story. We need one another. We are partners in the gospel. And may God bless you richly as you go into all the world and make disciples of Jews and Gentiles. And remember, Keep the Jewish people close to your heart. They're close to God's heart, too. Let's pray. Abba, we love you. We thank you so much for your grace, your mercy, for your loving kindness. We thank you for this great plan of salvation. We thank you for our Messiah, our Savior, Yeshua. We thank you for his death and his resurrection and his ascension. We thank you that he's coming again. And we thank you that we have the privilege of being his arms and legs and his voice 
in a dark and broken world. Lord, all we ask is that you do for others through us what you've already done in our hearts. Help us to make disciples so that they love you and that they obey you. And like us, they long for your coming. In Jesus' name, amen.